My name is David Plummer, and this is the Hold Fast Podcast. Leadership had a profound impact on my path as an athlete, as a father, and now as a leadership development consultant. The purpose of this podcast is to explore what leadership is and how it can be developed and displayed in all of us. Today we're joined by sport marketing executive Matt Farrell. Matt got his start in sport information for the University of Arkansas before joining USA Swimming in a similar capacity. After serving as the longtime chief marketing officer for USA Swimming, Matt left the sport marketing space to work for the Golf Channel as the commissioner of the cult hit World Long Drive Series before breaking out on his own to become a founding partner of Stadium Sports, focusing on name, image, and likeness consulting. Thanks for joining us, Matt. Oh, thanks, David. Great to be here. Why sports? You've had a, an awesome long career in a lot of different areas, but what drew you to it in the first place? You know, it. Um, I, I grew up in a relatively small town. I played every sport. Uh, the break between high school football and basketball might have been Friday to Monday. And I eventually tried to you know, walk on to play baseball at the University of Arkansas, uh, got pulled aside and said, Matt, you're not good enough. And uh, then I turned around and like, what do I do now? I love this too much and started working in the athletic department. I didn't know it at the time, but I just followed where my passion was. And that almost 30 years later is still still the case. That's just what I wake up excited about. That's awesome. So you kind of started in the sports information office and then really kind of moved up through the external side of things. What kind of drew you to the business of sport? I was majoring in journalism and I love to write and I still do. And so that was a natural place for me to get in. And this sounds funny now because when I started in it, we were so excited to get our first fax machine. That was a big deal. But my career arc has actually followed through the advent of the internet and the business opportunities around that, the advent of social media, the business opportunities around that. It's really just been right place, right time of how these different mediums have come along in my career and how to turn that into revenue, how to turn that into a promotional vehicle for sports athletes. And that's really how it's all come about. What is sports information? What does that look like? And what kind of role does it serve within the larger organization? It's a good question because it, it, it's night and day of what it was. Um, at the time, in the 90s and the 2000s, newspapers were thriving. There were fewer channels. Social media didn't exist. So your whole lot in life was to create information for other journalists to write stories about your property, about the athletes in, in your property. You serviced the media. Um, there's a, still an element of that but the sports organizations have now become the media outlet. You have your own, whether it be social media, YouTube channels, uh, whatever it might be. So now it's completely changed where you become a voice of your organization as if you're a media outlet, just as much as blogs, podcasts, traditional media in you know online newspaper, uh, local TV, whatever it might be. It's got to almost be like whiplash. That's a massive shift from here's the stats of the football team this weekend to actually producing social media content. I mean, that's night and day difference in, in how it changed over the years. It's amazing. I, I've, I've described it to people that 
and it's not much of an exaggeration. In the 90s, our job was to answer the phone. And we were busy the entire week answering the phone of media inquiries. And then the 2000s were like, okay, the phone's not ringing as much. Now we need to start using the dial pad. And now where we are today, it's your phone is everything but phone calls um, in, in terms of servicing, doing information. And so there's just been three massive shifts. And you look at what happened in newspapers over the course of that period and how you have to adapt. Really pretty seismic change just in how sports operates. And you try to stay ahead of it and try not to get left behind. So you kind of worked your way to the chief marketing officer role, and then you decide to take a maybe a little bit of a leap and go start working for the Golf Channel. What got you excited about that new work with the World Long Drive? There's always a part of me that enjoys um, a little bit of discomfort professionally. And... I loved USA Swimming still to this day. And I watched almost every minute of trials in the Olympics. And I just needed something different in my life professionally, a different challenge. And so going to the Golf Channel and specifically focusing on World Long Drive was this budding property that had a cool factor to it. It was disruptive in the sport of golf, which is known for quiet, uh, polite, and this was a loud in your face property, but it gave me a chance to be entrepreneurial within the context of a major company with NBC Sports, where you have some assets and some resources. COVID sent that sideways, but I would probably still make the same decision now that I did to really get in. And I love messes on the table. I love it when it's gritty. I love it when there's not a blueprint. That's my happy place, um, not just being a marketer to sell more units of toothpaste. Uh, I would go crazy doing those type of jobs. So the adjustment to NIL probably makes a lot of sense, given that passion around it. It makes perfect sense, because if you want to talk about a mess on the table. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so really, right after Golf Channel, I opened my own business, because who wouldn't want to do that during a pandemic? But if you think about the beginnings of NIL, it was another seismic change in sports that's also happening during a pandemic. It was a lot to throw at people. I want to really dive into the NIL. But before we get there, I want to at least briefly talk about what happened to get to NIL. I have kind of my own opinions, but I'd, I'd love to hear your perspective on what got us from student athletes signing away their name, image, and likeness when they sign their letter of intent to now being on the flip side where they have nearly full control of, of their name, image, and likeness. There's probably no one straight answer, but it was a perfect storm of things coming together. The money in college athletics the one and done factor, especially in in basketball, the meteoric rise of compensation for coaches, primarily college football, college basketball, and this pressure on even pressure on the one-time transfer rule. If I'm a student at the University of Arkansas, I can transfer to as many colleges as I want. But as soon as I become a student athlete, I can't. And all of these pressures just came together somewhat at once. I mean, over the course of a, a few years, 
And then the pressure point just, it was like a jack in the box. It had to, the pressure built so much that it had to come out. Yeah, I, I agree with you. It, it just seemed like one of those spaces where the NCAA really had an opportunity to lead and they just seemed to be intent on on dragging their feet. And I was always really surprised by that because it seemed like the people that were involved with those decisions were the ones who probably saw most clearly the writing on the wall. I mean, it took legislation for this to actually State change. by state. Yeah. Yeah. So then there was another, I mean, there was another piece. The COVID lead up to 2021 had athletic departments so focused on, can we even hold this event this weekend? What are our COVID protocols? And that just became all consuming and rightfully so that the deadline just kept getting closer and closer. And they're sitting there going, we're trying to figure out whether we can hold a basketball game this weekend. Where it needs to get is federal legislation. The NCAA didn't get that done. Congress has other things on its plate. That's where it needs to lead. But now we've got this ugly quilt of different legislation state by state. What is the role of the NCAA? What are they tasked with doing and how does that play into the NIL debate? (laughs) It's such a good question. What's happening in NIL in the collegiate space right now and you of all people will know this better than anybody, that's the norm of what the Olympic world has been like for 20 or 30 years. You see NIL come in on the college landscape and the NCAA somewhat asleep at the wheel on navigating it. And meanwhile, you've got the Olympic world over here going, what's the big deal? We've been doing this for for decades. The, The NCAA in its defense is trying to navigate issues for the high profile superstar, as well as the small sport athlete at D2. The reason the NCAA rule book is a few inches thick is because every example in there, some college has done to try to beat the system. And, and so I think it still has to maintain that leadership position in how to police it. And that's going to get very, very messy, but it still needs to be done. It can't be a free for all. Yeah, I, I would agree with you. And I've I've never been envious of the people working in compliance that have to navigate that rule book. It, it just doesn't seem like a, a fun job to, yeah. to get after every day. The Denver Broncos complain about the NFL. The Dallas Mavericks complain about the NBA. Swimmers, probably not you, complain about USA Swimming. It's intellectually lazy to say, oh my gosh, they're so stupid. I can't believe they couldn't handle that. And that still could be true, but walk a day in the shoes of a governing body of how they make decisions and how they need to make sure they're accounting for the 12-year-old on a team in a youth program as much as Michael Phelps or Missy Franklin in swimming. It's hard. Uh, it doesn't justify it, but it's it's a hard act to balance. Yeah, for sure. And I I think that's something that that often gets lost in the debate or argument is the complexity of the system, the complexity of the SEC versus the MIAC. It's massive. Hundreds of millions of dollars on the table in one and, you know, small private schools on the other. That's a really difficult for anybody to say, oh yeah, I got it figured out from top to bottom. I, I definitely know how to how to make decisions regardless of, of where we're at. Yeah. 
So one of the reasons I was most excited to talk to you, you know, we talk leadership on this podcast because it's just the thing that I'm super passionate about and really in the sport space. But I've known you as a leader. I've been exposed to you as a leader. And I was always just really impressed how you handled yourself and the reputation that you had. So selfishly, I'm excited that you're in this space because I think this space needs you. Oh, thank you. That's kind. But I'm also excited to hear what you're seeing of the reality. When this conversation kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger, there were all these fears. This is going to undercut amateurism. It's going to destroy Olympic sports at the collegiate level, all of the terrible things it was going to do to college athletics. But I'm curious from your perspective, have you seen those things come to fruition? It's probably more in the overblown category right now. You'll start to see the the leaks in the dam come out over time. But for the most part, the year has come and gone with, hey, I still tune in and watch as much college sports as I uh, did before. Forgive the Olympic example, but from a PR and communication standpoint, the worst three days leading into Olympic Games are the three days before the Olympics. No competition has started. Writers, journalists are on site. They're going crazy. We've got to, what are we going to write about? Are we going to write, write about human rights? Are we going to write about, write about security? And it's a mess. It's like everybody's wearing an uncomfortable shirt and they're trying to figure out how to find it. And then the games start and then things kind of settle. Because um, then you actually find your rhythm of the games. It, it doesn't mean goofy, off-the-wall things don't happen. But I look at this the same way. The chicken little of the sky is falling was primarily leading up to it. Then you start playing games and then you start to see deals happening. And the purists in Olympic sport, in collegiate sport, won't like it. Maybe they'll never like it. But it kind of settles and you're like, okay, this is not that big of a deal. Where the pressure is going to come is on the recruiting side. That's where the leaks in the system are going to come out. Hey, I want you to come play X sport at my school and we'll make sure we get you set up with the auto dealer in Lawrence, Lexington, Fayetteville, you know, Minneapolis, whatever it might be. That's where I think you're going to see the pressures come out and, and the weaknesses come out. Have you seen that start to happen? Have you seen this start to have an impact at the team level? Taking control away from coaches, you know, we heard a lot about it's going to have a negative impact on the locker room. Have you seen or heard of any of that really coming to fruition yet? You know, a couple examples that I've seen, I've been careful about, about naming names and I'll, I'll, I'll stop doing that. Nick Saban in Alabama makes a comment to the media that his freshman quarterback has seven figures in deals. Who knows if that's true? That was about recruiting. That was about next quarterback, come to Alabama. University of Oklahoma had a Heisman promoted starting quarterback this year, maybe hasn't had the season that he or the team want, and now got some NIL deals around it. And now a freshman is starting. And so you're starting to see those type of pressures come out. But again, not I hate to be a broken record, but this fracture in the locker room, I haven't seen it manifest in any significant way 
But it's been like that for 20, 30 years in the Olympic sports. Again, life is not fair. You could probably name swimmers with more gold medals and medals in general who aren't as marketable as some swimmers with one or no medals. Life isn't fair. But the locker room dynamic, it doesn't mean there's not friction. It doesn't mean there's not pressure. It doesn't mean the coach doesn't have to regulate when training has to happen and when we need to shut down on promotional activities. But I haven't seen it come out where it blows up the locker room. But the Olympic world has been living with that for a long time. Yeah, I know a couple of people that were making pretty good money. And that wasn't that wasn't everybody. <laughs> And everybody managed to uh, come together and compete together. Doesn't mean there's not jealousy. Doesn't yeah. mean there's not friction. But the U.S. and other countries still put together some pretty darn good teams in sports when there's a standout. And honestly, it's no different than the NFL. The quarterback's making more money than the linemen. And on down the line, we're acting like this is this new phenomenon, but it's in every sport. We just haven't seen it in this venue, so we lose our minds. The thing I was always surprised at is we said we hadn't seen it in this venue, but we kind of had with scholarships, not to the same level, right? It's a good point. But there are people that are on full ride scholarships where everything's taken care of. And even before NIL, they were getting a monthly check to make sure that they had everything that they needed covered, room and board, and people who were paying for the opportunity. So I, I just think that you're so right in that context is for whatever reason just missed as we get into the conversation about it. Yeah. And college athletics, at some point, the athletic department chose somebody to put forward as a Heisman candidate, not a team picture on the media guide. Somebody gets the post game interview. It's happening and it has happened. Now there's just more hard dollars attached to it. And so it's just brought it different light, but sports is always the haves and the have-nots. It's the way it's been. It's just maybe there's a few more poker chips on the table now. That makes sense. If you're kind of looking around at the coaches and administrators that are kind of living in this new reality, are there people who are doing it well? And if so, what are they doing that's helping to sort of manage this situation in a way that's beneficial for the institution and for teams and for their athletes? It's a great question. You know, at some point, your leadership topic, I was thinking a lot about it. Leaders in college athletics, a few days ago, they had to wake up thinking about academics and athletics. Um, and you could pick the order. And now they have to think about the commercial aspects of a student athlete. And many times that's an 18-year-old. And so that's a different responsibility. And so their leadership responsibility, I think, is different. The schools that I think are doing a good job of, of it are the ones that are putting education programs in place for life skills. Probably an underused term, life skills, but we're really asking an 18-year-old not only to pick his or her school and coach and program, but now you're like, okay, you might also need to pick an agent too. And I have an 18-year-old who has been managing a checking account for you know, a year or two. So I, I like what some of the schools have done that have started to really put programs in place. I think Wake Forest has done some, some good things in that. 
I know the University of Michigan was doing a lot of thorough, responsible planning on how to use other divisions and other departments, excuse me, on on campus, uh, whether it be legal or finance or journalism school, uh, economics, whatever it might be. I think the winners at the end of the day are going to look at the holistic athlete and how we prepare that student for life and how to handle these new new opportunities. I just couldn't agree with you more. And I think sometimes our priorities get a little out of whack. They're sort of the things that we say we're about, and there's the things that we're kind of actually about. And I had a a mentor of mine in the athletic space who said, are we a business in college athletics? Absolutely not. We're not a business. Are we a business in college athletics? Absolutely, we're a business. And we kind of have to live that dynamic. But I I think that what you're describing is the way forward of the Wild West will calm down and the people that are out in front are going to be the people or the institutions that are investing in people. That just just seems so, so natural and almost obvious. Completely agree with it. When you become a professional athlete in, I'll I'll say, most sports, you have somebody there and resources there that might help you with financial planning. Now you're talking about an 18-year-old who's picking an agent who might have money in his or her pocket for the first time, and are they just left out there? What does that mean to their Pell Grant? What does that mean to hiring an accountant for taxes at the end of the year? And so we've, we've brought in cash, but the infrastructure hasn't caught up. How do we manage it and be responsible to the human beings who are on the receiving side of it and the responsibility that comes with it? As we were kind of preparing for this, our producer said, from an outsider's perspective, it seems like before all of this happened, the cash was still there. It was just only criminals that were that were handling the cash, right? Because it was sort of this unlawful activity where at least now we've moved it to where you don't have to be a criminal to engage. <laughs> that seems like a positive progression in the, in the right way. Right. I think that's right. Yeah. <laughs> I got one more question for you. I hope it's an important one. As you're thinking about the landscape changing, what would you hope that a young, talented athlete and their family knew going into this system? It's probably pretty simple. Um, and, and maybe on the shallow side, the trickle down of all of this is really the high school athlete, um, which will turn into the junior high athlete. And in many ways, I did not grow up in a social media generation when I was a teen, uh, probably a good thing. But it's starting to cultivate who you are and being protective of your image at an earlier age. You know, if you have a goofy TikTok account as a 16-year-old, maybe that's fine. But now you've got companies that are already looking at you if you excel in a sport. And so I, I think it's just... It's starting to bring that responsibility of how I think of myself as a business earlier. And maybe that's not a great thing, uh, but I think that's it's it's natural. Uh, you'll know the swimmer, maybe two or, well, maybe at least a couple Olympians at uh, the time Olympics, uh, Josh Davis, multi-medals in the Olympics, probably not the highest profile name, but he said, 
I am the business. And he was smart enough to know that he needed to cultivate his image because uh, he's not selling widgets, he's selling himself and he is the business. And I think that's the advice to young athletes these days. You have to think of it differently. Maybe that's a shame, but I think it's also the reality. I mean, you can't think of a better role model in that than Josh Davis. I mean, just a, a pillar of integrity. What a great guy. But I hear what you're saying, and it almost feels like a little bit more childhood lost. It does. It, I could hear myself saying it, uh, but um, it, it is the reality, but it, it is. Totally. It totally is. There's this promise at the heart of athletics, right? Where if you're good enough, if you work hard enough, if you have the talent, you can turn it into something. You can make these dreams come true. And I think sometimes we oversell that promise a little bit, but there's also something really inspiring and wonderful about it. I can think of a lot of athletes who gave up some childhood to make something a reality, and I would include myself in that camp. The advice I always gave young athletes was, if this is something you have to do because you have to do it, and I don't mean mom's making you go, I don't mean coaches yelling at you. I mean, you have to do it because you can't think of another way to spend your time, then just go all in. And if you don't want to do it that way, then man, don't go all in because you're probably not going to enjoy it. You know, David, this is toward, toward the end and you can cut this out if you want, because I don't, I don't mean to embarrass you, but my greatest David Plummer story, and I mean this in all sincerity, you're in your late twenties, you are making a run for Rio because of all the reasons that you just said, you're all in on it. And it was what you wanted to do. May have been some financial gain for you, but I don't think knowing you, that was the driver. And you came and you sat in my office and I remember where I'm sitting. I remember where you were sitting. It's just one of those moments where you said, hey, you know, um, here in about a year from now, Rio is going to be passed and I want to I want to enter the work world. Matt, what advice do you have? And I never told you this, David, but I'm sitting there thinking, oh, man, there's a, a someone who was not an athlete who just graduated college, who's also whatever you were at the time, 27, 28 years old, who has maybe almost 10 more years of experience working in sports and David's entering the field as an upper 20 something. And it was very impactful to me, just like, man, how much David put on the line for his career, for swimming and his dreams, when behind the scenes, he's at such a disadvantage coming into the work world. And we talked through that for an hour and clearly you're doing just fine, uh, David. <laughs> but the, the moral of the story is I don't think you know how much emotionally that had an impact on me of what you put on the line for your own dreams and aspirations. And it was admirable. And it's why I was serious about you being on an extreme short list of favorite people in the sport. Man, I really appreciate that, Matt. I don't tell people often my career transition from the podium in Rio to what came after. I was an administrative intern in the athletic department at 30 years old, three weeks after the Olympics, <laughs> delivering mail between Beerman 
and our hockey facility really? I'm out on a golf cart delivering the mail in between. It was one of those things where I was like, I'm going to start at the bottom and I'm going to work my way up and I'm going to apply all of this. And in January, when I was delivering the mail between buildings in Minneapolis, I was like, man, I wish I did the start at the bottom. This was a terrible <laughs> idea. Oh my gosh. That's, that's amazing though. The reason I feel comfortable saying, you know, you can invest in this, it's worthwhile if you have to do it, is because, man, I had to get those things out. I had to make a run because I always would have regretted it if I didn't. And I was really lucky to learn the things that I did along the way and, and be surrounded by, by good people. And that's why I think it's worth it because what I found in the transition, and the transition was hard, but... I had built a skill set that I could utilize. And it's hard to sell that skill set right at the beginning, but it's still there. And I had a another good friend of mine, Peter Rocca, who was a 1976 Olympian. He was like, what you'll find when you get into the workforce is people don't want to work like you do. You've kind of built a skill set around that. And that's the cool thing about athletics. And and that's the the pitch that we make on behalf of our student athletes to businesses is this is a skill set that you want. They may not have an internship, but they got something that's that's really, really meaningful. And that's why I think I go back and forth. I'm really intentional when I say I think it's worthwhile because I've thought about it. And I've been, you know, that 30 year old intern that was like, I don't know <laughs> if it was worth it. No, there had to be questioning days and, and, and moments, but uh, it's your character, it's your work ethic that uh, has paved all that, all, all those deposits that you've made. I think it's really important and that what happened three months after Rio, I had never heard that part of the story. And it just, uh, I don't know, it's very inspiring. It's cool, it's scary. And uh, to go back to maybe an earlier term, it's a little bit messy. But when you pull it together, hopefully it makes it all worth it. Yeah, for sure. The Hold Fast Podcast is produced by Premier Sports Psychology and a part of the Premier Podcast Educational Series. For more information, please visit premiersportspsychology.com or check out our online educational suite at mindsetprogram.com.